Open your Bibles up with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. If you need a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one from either side of the room over on the uh, welcome table or the bookshelf over here. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love for you to keep that and use that throughout the week. There's a helpful little half sheet in there that kind of helps get you started if you're unfamiliar with, with how to read and how to study the Bible. And it helps you remember that uh, you're not alone in that and that we do that together. That's one of the reasons that we gather together here this morning. And so I want to encourage you, take that with you. Uh, we love to get the Word of God in your hands. And I, I would love for you to be able to look down and read God's Word as I speak God's Word this morning so that you can see that this is, in fact, God's Word and not mine. Okay, uh, Because I think that God's Word is going to offer us some incredible hope this morning as we look to Jesus together through that. <clears throat> if you're joining us for the first time today, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Revelation. Last week, we, we covered a lot of ground, and we looked at all seven trumpet judgments as, as one literary unit between chapters 8 and 11. And before we get then to the seven bowl judgments, we get this, this interlude, this intermission, if you will, in chapters 12 through 14, where the, the curtain of heaven is pulled back yet again, and John is given yet another vision of something that's going on behind the scenes of our lives here on earth. And so if you're visiting for the first time, you picked a really good Sunday to come, because even though we're right in the middle of Revelation, we're going to sort of get a recap here of all the things that we've been discussing, okay? We're going to get a, a good look at the bigger picture again. Now, we're not going to go through chapters 12 through 14 all in one swoop today, because there's some stuff in these chapters that is worth slowing down and looking at on a deeper level. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to cover these three chapters, even though they make up a whole literary unit. And today, we're going to see that we can't really understand. We can't truly understand our own personal lives. We're not just here to actually try to figure out what Revelation says in chapter 12 today is going to teach us what, what is happening in every chapter of our lives. And we can't truly understand that unless we understand what Jesus is revealing to John here in chapter 12. We need to remember these aren't John's words. These are Jesus's words to John. Jesus is revealing, uh, apocalypsing, showing, pulling back the curtain, uh, the reality of uh, heaven's perspective on the realities of our earthly lives. And so uh, because these, this is Jesus doing that, I know we just prayed during our prayer time. If you're new here, um, I just really like to pray and because I need it. And uh, uh, before I deliver the word of the Lord, I want, I want the, the Lord himself to prepare hearts and speak to it. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and we pray. As we open it up, Father, we ask, as the psalmist asked, that you would open our eyes, that we might contemplate wondrous things here, that you would give us understanding so that we might obey it with all our heart, because you've promised at the beginning of Revelation, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy aloud, and blessed are those who hear it and keep it, for the time is near. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives through your word here in Revelation 12 this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So we, we, we thanked the veterans already because yesterday was uh, Veterans Day, and that's a day where we honor and celebrate all those who've served in the, the branches of the U.S. military. Several of you are U.S. veterans in here, and again, I just want to say that we're incredibly grateful for your service and your sacrifice. Um, and, and maybe you are familiar with this, but maybe, maybe some aren't familiar that Veterans Day was originally called Armistice Day. And it commemorated the end of World War I, which was dubbed the war to end all wars. Imagine that. The war to end all wars. Now, a quick, a, a quick glance at history and even today, right now, will reveal to us that that war did not end all wars. Right? Battles are still raging all over the globe. And that's because there's another war that has been actually taking place long before the war to end all wars and is continuing to rage on and on throughout our time until Christ himself returns to end all wars, okay? It's a lesser known war, but everybody in this room, in fact, everyone across the scope of human history is enlisted in this war, whether we realize it or not, and whether we want to be a part of it or not. Now, this war directly affects your life and, and everything that you experience in it. And that's because this is the great cosmic war for your life. Or more accurately, it is the great cosmic war for your soul. This is a supernatural war. And this morning, we're going to get a look at the two opposing sides. But we're quickly going to see that this is a very lopsided war. There's a clear winner here, and spoiler alert, his name is Jesus Christ. And that means that everybody who's entrusted themselves to him is guaranteed victory over the enemy. But that doesn't mean that we no longer need to fight. That day will come. It will. And we'll get there in Revelation, and we'll get there in history. But it's not yet. So here's the main point of our sermon, and the main point, I think, that the passage is teaching us as followers of Christ, we must fight the personal battles of faithful endurance because Jesus has already won the cosmic war. As followers of Christ, we must fight the personal battles of faithful endurance because Jesus has already won the cosmic war. We don't all fight the same way or the same things, right? But it's all part of this major war that's been going on and Jesus has already won. And so that should give us the endurance and the strength that we need to fight. Through our passage this morning, we're going to see the viciousness of our enemy, the decisiveness of our victory, and the finiteness of his fury. The viciousness of our enemy, the, the decisiveness of our victory, and the finiteness of his fury. And all of these things are going to help us understand this ongoing need for faithful endurance in Christ. Let's dig in together the viciousness of our enemy. Look at uh, Revelation 12, <clears throat> 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Now, that doesn't sound like a vicious enemy, does it? Right? So what's going on here? Who is this woman? Well, it's, it's not a literal woman, because John just told us that this is a sign, a great sign that appeared in heaven. What's a sign? It's a symbol for something else. 
excuse me. And if you were here during our series through the book of Genesis, then maybe you remember the dream that Joseph had in Genesis 37 where the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to him. In that dream, the sun represented uh, his father Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. The moon represented his mother Rachel, and the stars represented his 11 brothers who together with Joseph, the 12th star, made up the tribes of Israel. So this woman, this great sign in heaven, this woman that John sees clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head is a symbol for God's covenant people through whom the promised Messiah, the, the, the promised Messiah would be born. And the labor and the agony this woman is experiencing as she's about to give birth is a symbol for the persecution that the Israelites suffered as they waited with anticipation for the Messiah to come and deliver them from their enemies. That's the whole story of the Old Testament right there. And who was behind that persecution? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. That's a little more vicious, right? Now we have another sign, a great fiery red dragon that's a symbol for something else. When the 12 churches that John was writing this book, this letter of revelation to, when they heard that word dragon, it would have reminded them of imagery that they've heard before in the scriptures that they had, which is our Old Testament. Without exception, in the Old Testament, throughout that, the, the Old Testament, the image of a dragon always represented evil kingdoms that persecuted God's people, without exception. And when these 12 churches heard that this fiery red dragon, listen, had seven heads and 10 horns, it would have immediately made them think of Rome, which in their day was nicknamed the city on seven hills and just so happened to have 10 administrative districts. And that would make sense because these churches were suffering persecution under Rome in that first century but as we'll see shortly when we get to verse 9, this fiery red dragon doesn't merely represent the wicked kingdoms of this world that persecute God's people. It also points to the true enemy who is viciously opposed to God and works through those wicked kingdoms to oppose God's people. That enemy is none other than the evil one himself, Satan and the seven crowns on the dragon's head here represent Satan's false claims of universal authority and dominion. He's an arrogant, arrogant enemy. I used to assume that verse 4 was talking about Satan and his demon army being kicked out of heaven before God created the world. We've seen how stars have represented angels and things like that. But it, it, this would seem then to contradict, though, uh, what we're going to read here shortly in verses 7 through 12. And, and John already right here in this passage, in this first part, uh, verse 1, mentions stars as a symbol for God's people. So what's going on here in verse 4? Well, he's alluding, as he does often, back to the Old Testament, and in particular, the book of Daniel. And, and again, in particular, right here, Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, where Daniel saw a vision of a little horn that grew as high as the heavens and threw some of the stars to the earth and trampled them. 
Now, in Daniel's time, that image was portraying a coming ruler who would viciously oppress God's people, and it actually happened. In 167 BC, a Greek ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, there's going to be a, a, a test on this later, okay? Good luck spelling that. Antiochus IV Epiphanes trampled Israel's rebellion. He captured the city of Jerusalem, and he defiled God's temple by setting up a statue of the Greek god Zeus and then sacrificing a pig, which was unclean, twice a day on the altar. But John's vision here is warning these churches to watch out for Antiochus IV Epiphanes, right? Why? He's been dead for 200 years. And he's not even... Uh, uh, ultimately warning them to watch out for Rome, although this is speaking of Rome as a part of that. What it's doing, what he is doing, what Jesus is doing by revealing this to John is pulling back the curtain to show John and those first century churches, and listen, you and me right now in our time, that the true enemy of God and God's people most often exerts his opposition through wicked human rulers and empires all throughout history. We need to understand that. In fact, we can trace Satan's opposition through human beings all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve bought the serpent's lie and allied themselves, they changed sides in the garden, right? They allied themselves with the serpent, and by sinfully rebelling against God, what did God do? He promised in Genesis 3.15 to put hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And one day, the promised offspring of the woman would have his heel crushed by the serpent. But this promised offspring of the woman would ultimately crush the serpent's head in a decisive victory. And the whole rest of the Old Testament, starting with the birth of Cain and Abel, the whole rest of the Old Testament reveals this hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Why? Because Satan is viciously working through human beings to try to stop God from keeping his promise to bring the serpent crusher. The serpent, the dragon, was viciously working through Cain to kill Abel. He was viciously working behind Pharaoh when Pharaoh gave the order to drown the Hebrew children in the Nile when Moses was born. In fact, later in Scripture, whenever the writers talk about the exodus from Egypt, do you know what they call Pharaoh? They call him a dragon, a serpent, a sea monster. When David fought Goliath, you know how they described Goliath's armor? with scales, like a serpent, like a dragon. When Saul went mad and tried to kill David multiple times in a jealous rage, Satan was viciously behind it. Why? Because God promised to bring that, that child, that, that offspring through David's line. Satan viciously used Haman in the book of Esther. That, that's such a, a, an interesting book in and of itself. Never actually mentions God one time. And yet, the, the whole point of the book is to show that even though God is quiet, he's always there working on behalf of his people. But Satan used 
viciously used Haman in the book of Esther to send this edict through the Persian Empire, instructing people to attack and kill all the Jews. And then when King Herod ordered the slaughter of all male children two years old and under, after the wise men told him that the king of the Jews had been born, Herod was acting as an agent of this vicious dragon. Why? Because that dragon was, was poised and trying to devour the promised child of the woman before that child had a chance to be born and then grow up and then crush his head and end his vicious reign. But in all his viciousness, the dragon couldn't stop the promised child from being born. That's what we're going to celebrate in this next month. Christ is born. Look at verse 5 and 6. She gave birth to a son, a male who's going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1260 days. Now these two verses, 5 and 6, summarize Jesus' entire life and ministry on earth. We spent uh, uh, several weeks, like, like a year almost, going through John's gospel. Well, John just took all of what he said in his gospel and condensed it to these two sentences right here, right? And you're like, well, why didn't we just read that? No, you're not. Because God's word is living and active. It's fascinating. It's not just fascinating. It teaches us. It, it exposes the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and directs us toward Christ over and over and over. Those two verses summarize Jesus' entire life and ministry on earth, but from his birth to his crucifixion to his resurrection from the dead and then his ascension into heaven. But it's not summarizing these things because the details are unimportant. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the gospel of John or the other gospels or pretty much anything else in the New Testament, right? It's summarized in order to emphasize the one point that we all need to understand this morning, and that point is this. The dragon could not stop the birth of Jesus, and even though he viciously worked through wicked men to cause the death of Jesus, the dragon can never stop the rule of Jesus. Let me say that again. The dragon could not stop the birth of Jesus, and even though he viciously worked through the wicked men to cause the death of Jesus, the dragon can never stop the rule of Jesus. Folks, that's really good news. Verse 5 says that the son will rule all nations with an iron rod. That's a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, which talks about how the nations rage viciously, right? They take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one, which is what Messiah means in Hebrew and Christ means in Greek. And the Lord laughs at these nations and their futile attempts because he has already installed his king, his anointed one as king on his holy mountain. And the Lord calls his king in that psalm, he calls his king his son. And he promises to give him the nations as, as his inheritance and then he tells his son, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. You see, Jesus is the son from Psalm 2. And Jesus is the son here in verse 5. And when it says that he was caught up to God into his throne, it's revealing to us that Jesus' resurrection and ascension are the direct fulfillment of God's promise to install his anointed one as king on his holy mountain. But what about the woman 
Verse 6 says she fled into the wilderness to a place that God prepared for her where she was nourished by God for 1,260 days. What's that all about? In the Bible, the wilderness is always a place of danger where God protects and purifies his people by teaching them to depend on him and not on themselves or any other nation. Verse 6 helps us see that the woman represents not only God's faithful covenant people in the Old Testament who were waiting for the Messiah to come, but also God's faithful new covenant people who now depend on the Messiah who has come. She had the baby, and now she's fleeing. What does that sound like to you? The entire book of Acts, right? Persecuted church. The woman in the wilderness is the church in the world, and we are being protected and purified by God by learning dependence upon him as we wait, as we look back on the king who came once, and now we wait for the king to come again, right? That period of 1260 days, it's the same time period that we've been seeing in the book of Revelation. We've heard it called 42 months or three and a half years. We'll hear it in a moment called time times and half a time. It's all the same symbolic way of describing this time period between Jesus's resurrection and his return. In this next section of verses, we're going to see why this time period is like living in the wilderness, but we're also going to see why we can trust in God's protection. So we've looked at the viciousness of the enemy. Now let's look at the decisiveness of our victory. Look at verses 7 through 10. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, and he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, remember loud? It's just always loud. Why? Because this is commanding. This is victory that he's shouting here. I heard a loud voice in heaven say that the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. Again, verse nine leaves no doubt as to who this dragon is. He's the ancient serpent, right, from the Garden of Eden. When we went through John's gospel together, we heard Jesus call this dragon the devil multiple times. In, the Greek, in Greek, the word devil means slanderer. He's, he's one who lies about others. Remember how Jesus called him the father of lies in John chapter eight? Throughout most of the Old Testament, this father of lies was called Hasatan in Hebrew, which means the Satan in English. And Satan or Satan means adversary. He's the adversary, the adversary. In English, it gets shortened to Satan and used as his name because, because that's who he is. He's like the one. He's the adversary. Just like we use the Greek word Christ as a name for Jesus, even though it's really a title for Jesus that means the anointed one. We call Satan, Satan, and we call Jesus Christ because that's who they are. He's the adversary. He's the king. He's the king. After Christ was caught up to God and to his throne, 
which is his resurrection and ascension. One of his chief angels named Michael took his angel army and kicked Satan and his demon army out of heaven. This is where it happened. Up until Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the throne, the slandering adversary stood before God day and night in the throne room of heaven and spewed accusations against God himself and God's people. Now, that might seem like a foreign concept, but the Old Testament gives us a couple examples of this. Maybe you've read through the book of Job, and you know from chapters 1 and 2 that Satan came and stood before the Lord and accused him of unfairly making Job off-limits and accused Job of only loving God because God made him off-limits. You take all that stuff away from him, and then he'll deny you. But there's another one maybe you're less familiar with in Zechariah chapter 3, where the prophet Zechariah sees the high priest Joshua, not the same Joshua of uh, earlier in the Old Testament. The high priest Joshua standing before the Lord and Satan standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. By that time, the temple in Jerusalem had already been destroyed, and that meant that this high priest Joshua had no way to make a sacrifice to atone for his own sins before he could make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. That's what the high priest had to do. Why? Because he was also a sinner, like the people he represented before God. So Satan, the accuser, was there to, to use Joshua's uncleanness as a way to try and trap God, if that could, could ever be possible, right? If God is true, then he can't allow an unclean man to make sacrifices without contradicting his own word. If God is just, then he can't simply turn a blind eye to Joshua's sins and forgive him without an atonement being made, because in order for God to be just, he has to punish all sin, Every last one, without exception. But do you know that God is never threatened by the accusations of the adversary? Do we, do we like Psalm 2, you remember? He laughs. He laughs. He had his angels remove Joshua's filthy clothes and give him clean clothes to wear. And God told Joshua, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you in festive robes. But how can God say that? How can God do that without compromising his truth and his justice? Well, fortunately for us, we have the answer from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness, aka the truth and the justice of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament is pointing to this moment right here. The righteousness of God is through what? Faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that we all have filthy clothes. And they are justified, a.k.a. declared righteous, a.k.a. get new clothes, festive clothes. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness. Why? Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, Paul says. Why? So that he would be just the one who punishes every sin and the justifier, 
the one who justifies the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. This is how God can maintain his truth and justice. When Jesus came into the world, he became the temple and the high priest and the, the atoning sacrifice all in one. As the true temple, Jesus was the place where God's righteousness and presence dwelt on the earth. And he revealed that through the perfectly sinless life that he lived. And his sinlessness enabled him then to be the perfect high priest. Why? Because he didn't need an atoning sacrifice for himself before he could atone for the sins of his people. And because he's perfect, he offered himself as the pure and spotless lamb, the sacrificial lamb, his own blood poured out to atone for the sins of his people once and for all time. Hebrews tells us that we don't have to keep doing this over and over and over again because Christ did it once and that's good enough. Through the crucifixion of Jesus, God proved that he is the true God of justice who punishes every sin and he proved that he is the true God of grace who pardons sinners. That's more good news, isn't it? But he only pardons those who put their faith in Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at there. If you've entrusted your life to Christ, you can be confident that God has pardoned all of your sin, past, present, and future, the stuff that you don't even know about yet. Why? Because he punished his son in your place. It's been taken care of. It hasn't been brushed aside. It's been atoned for. Someone else was punished for you. Jesus willingly took your punishment upon himself so that you can have his righteousness and live forever in the presence of God. That's what the church is now. We are the temple. Why? Because Christ is the head of the body and we're his body. We're united to him who is the true temple. Your filthy clothes have been removed and you've been given festive robes to wear. Do you know that? Do you know that? God the Father rose God the Son from the grave to show that Christ's perfect life and Christ's perfect death were fully enough. They were enough to satisfy God's wrath and to reconcile us to God forever. If you're a follower of Christ, that is true for you this morning. And you can rejoice in that. You can rest in that. If you haven't entrusted your life to Jesus alone, then you have no reason to be confident that you've been reconciled to God this morning. Your sin is not, has not been removed from you. You're still wearing filthy clothes and it still must be punished because God is just. He wouldn't be just if he didn't punish it. If you reject Jesus, then what does that do? It leaves you alone to bear the full weight of God's just wrath and punishment for all of your sins, past, present, and future, even the ones you don't know about. If you reject Jesus, it's on you. If you brush all this off as a fairy tale, then you're left with a bunch of questions about life that your heart keeps asking. Why? Because Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity on the hearts of humanity. You're asking questions whether you want to or not. You want to know these answers, but you can't ultimately provide them. What's the purpose of life? Why is there pain and evil and suffering and death in this world? What happens when you die? Is there any lasting hope at all? Have you found it? Anywhere? 
You see, there's nothing else, and there is no one else who can satisfy God's justice the way Jesus has. And there is nothing else and no one else who can satisfy the longings, every last one of them, that your heart has the way Jesus can. So don't fall prey to the one who deceives the whole world. It's, it's laid out for us right here. In one of John's other letters, 1 John chapter 5, he says, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the devil. Don't, don't be one who continues to be deceived. Don't wear yourself out trying to work off a sin debt that you'll never be able to repay. Why? Because you keep adding to it. I keep adding to mine. Even now, as a follower of Christ, I keep adding to my sin debt, and yet the Lord himself has already paid it. I'm living on credit, and that credit is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it never runs out. Why not then run to the one who alone is able to erase your debt completely and credit you with his righteousness that never, ever defaults? never fails to pay for what you owe. You do that by confessing your sin to Jesus and your need for his forgiveness. And then you just, you cling to him in faith. You cling to him in dependence upon his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his vindicating resurrection. You look to Christ himself and all that he is and all that he's done and you say, this is the one that my hope is in. Not in anyone or anything else. See, the serpent crushed Jesus' heel on the cross and, though, and, and thought that he had won the war when Jesus was buried in the tomb. But Satan must not have been listening very well when Jesus predicted his own crucifixion in John chapter 12. Remember what he said? He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to what? Be glorified. Does that sound like a loser to you? And a few verses later, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, cast out to where or out of where? Well, John just told us here in verses 9 and 10. The great dragon was thrown out, cast out. He was thrown down out of heaven along with his demons when Christ walked out of the grave and, caught, and was caught up to God and to his throne. You see, the promised son crushed the serpent's head in a decisive victory when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. For all who put their trust in Jesus, his decisive victory has become our decisive victory. Look at verses 11 and 12. They, the brothers and sisters that John talked about in, in, in verse 10, they conquered him, being the, the, the devil, the adversary, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury. Remember earth and sea next week when we get to chapter 13. Because he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. You see, Jesus conquered Satan and his power of sin and death by dying on the cross for our sins. And since we've put our trust in Christ, we're covered by his blood by the blood of the lamb, right? And that makes us then conquerors over Satan too. Paul puts it beautifully in Romans chapter eight. Therefore, there is now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. God, the just one, he's the one who justifies. So if he does that, then who can condemn you, Paul says. If God has justified you in Christ, there is literally no one that can, that can tell you otherwise, that can condemn you again in your sin. Christ Jesus is the one who died, Paul said, but even more has been raised. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Church, listen to this. Our accuser has been thrown out of the throne room of heaven because our intercessor has taken his rightful place at the throne of God. There's no place left for Satan, for the dragon and his angels. That doesn't mean, though, that the accuser has nothing left to say. He may not be able to, to, to tug on God's ear and try to convince him of your guilt, but he will surely still try to convince you. And I see you're shaking your heads because you know this. When you sin, he's right there. Now he's at your side, whispering lies in an attempt to make you feel condemned. You ever hear these voices in your head? You're a failure, an embarrassment. I can't believe you did that again. I can't believe you said that again. God's fed up with you. Don't waste his time running back to him. You disgust him and you disgust me. Listen to me. Look at me, church. These are lies. Lies from the one who is trying to deceive the world. They are not true. They're lies coming from an enemy who can no longer condemn you because Christ has eternally covered you. You have to know that. I have to know that. And that's easy to forget when you're in the middle of sin. That's why we need each other to remind each other of that. When the accuser attacks you with the word of condemnation, you resist him with the word of your testimony. That is, you remember the gospel, the gospel that we sang about this morning, the one gospel, and you hold fast to the truth that Christ has set you free. That's why we sing songs with lyrics like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look, upward I look. Why? Because that's where Christ is. And I see him there who put an end to all my sin, all of it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Oh, oh I could sing that over and over and over again. Church, this is our testimony. This is our testimony. We are covered by the blood of the lamb. We are more than conquerors in Christ, as Paul tells us. We defeat Satan by depending on Jesus. We don't need to go storming the gates of hell and I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Listen, it's enough to stand firm. We defeat Satan by depending on Jesus, even if that means suffering to the point of death because we love Jesus more than we love our own lives. Why? Because we know this life is not the, the real life that matters. How about that line in the first song that we sang this morning? Be still and remember 
the worst that can come, what's the worst that we fear? Isn't it death itself? As followers of Christ, this, this right here, be still and remember the worst that can come. This is what death does for us. It shortens our journey and it hastens us home to our king who's on the throne. You see, our victory is decisive. Not even death itself can keep us from being with Jesus forever. There's no place in heaven any longer for the dragon and his demons, but in salvation and power and authority, our King Jesus has gone ahead of us. Do you remember what he said in John, in the gospel? To prepare a place for us so that where he is, there we may also be. And if he's gone to prepare a place for us, He's going to come back again, isn't he? Until then, the devil intends to wreak havoc in this world that he has been thrown down to, but he's been bound. His power is limited and his time is short and he knows it. And that leads us to this final point, which we'll get through quickly here, verses 13 through 17, the finiteness of his fury. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from its mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Now we come back to the woman, that symbol that we started with. She symbolizes the church, and we see now the dragon persecuting her because he couldn't kill the child. He's persecuting her, and and God is protecting her. In the Old Testament, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and cared for them in the wilderness, he spoke of it as carrying them on wings of an eagle. And now he does the same thing for the church in the new exodus while we are in the wilderness waiting to be delivered into the promised land. In his fury, the dragon will try to destroy the church with a flood of deceit and persecution. But just as God rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh by parting the Red Sea, so too will he bring his church safely through these waters. Every time the early church was persecuted in the book of Acts, what happened? The gospel spread farther and the church grew stronger, right? Why? Because Jesus said, I'll build my church. Not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against it. Even when the people were martyred, when they were killed for holding firmly to the testimony about Jesus, the church continued to grow because it was nourished by the king himself. The dragon furiously persecuted the early church, but the church stood firm in Christ. And now the dragon furiously wages war with the rest of the woman's offspring, that is, with believers in the church in every age between the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. That means that he wages war with you and with me as we follow Jesus. But we don't need to be afraid because his fury is finite and his time is short. You see, the dragon can spew lies, but he can't ultimately deceive us. Why? Because we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit lives in us and leads us into all truth. John's gospel told us that. And he does that as we cling to Jesus together. You don't have to do this alone. You shouldn't do this alone. 
And the dragon can persecute us, but he can't ultimately destroy us. Paul says we're struck down, but not destroyed. Because not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, Revelation 12 is reminding us that we are, in fact, strangers and exiles in the wilderness of a fallen world. This is not our home. But God will be faithful to protect us through every danger as we cling to Christ. And he will bring us safely to the promised land. Our eternal home. Whether that be through our own death or through Christ's return. So what do we do while we wait? We keep the commands of God and we hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. In other words, we grow in dependence upon Christ and in confidence in Christ by putting on the armor of God that we talked about during our prayer time in Ephesians 6, and we stand firm in the strength of Christ. And Christ himself then will strengthen us to faithfully endure every thing our adversary throws at us to extinguish the flaming darts and he will strengthen us to faithfully proclaim the good news that the dragon has in fact already been conquered by the blood of the lamb the apostle peter puts it this way in first peter 5 8 through 11 be sober-minded be alert why your adversary the devil the serpent the dragon right is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Why? Because he couldn't devour the promised child. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Why? Because he's went off to wage war against the rest of the offspring. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. What does that sound like? Nourishment. After you have suffered a little while, to him be the dominion forever. Amen. See, as followers of Christ, we must fight the personal battles of faithful endurance because Jesus has already won the cosmic war. Church, our enemy is vicious, but his fury is finite because our victory has already been decided salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have already come in part through the death and resurrection of the serpent crusher. And in a short time, a short time, that salvation and power and kingdom and authority will come in full when our risen king returns. And until then, he will nourish us in the wilderness as we cling to him in hope. Church, we have conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So let's hold then firmly to that testimony, knowing that Christ himself, Christ himself will hold us to the very end. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it offers us supreme hope in Jesus, our serpent crushing savior king, who already reigns on our behalf in power. We pray, Lord, that today, whatever we leave here and we go back to facing, that we would go back with a new mindset, a refreshed heart, an empowered spirit to endure the battles that we face, not by ourselves, but with Christ as our king, victorious, and with his church, with whom we are united to Christ through the spirit. We pray, Lord, you would be glorified in our lives, whether it's by uh, 
simple endurance in the terms of just continuing on or through the, the very giving of our own lives. Whatever you have for us, Lord, strengthen us to accept that knowing that no matter what, the worst that may come will but shorten our journey and let us be safely home with our King. We love you. We pray you, uh, praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.